The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, go ahead and join me, Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 11 and 12 and 13, or 12 and 13, but we're going to start reading together in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan, and he came up out of the water... Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Last week, we saw together, as Jesus began his earthly ministry, he came from an area known as Galilee to a place in the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist. We talked last week about a few reasons why Jesus was was baptized. One was to fulfill Old Testament prophecy that had spoken of one who would come to prepare the way for Messiah. And that one was John the Baptist. And Jesus' coming to John the Baptist to be baptized by him helped make clear to Israel that John the Baptist was the one that was promised to come to point to the ultimate promised one who was Jesus. And so we saw last week... Jesus was baptized um, to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. We, we also saw that it worked in the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that said that when the Messiah would come, he would come in humility and come as a servant. That it was, it was a, a picture of humility for the sinless, perfect Son of God, the eternal Son of God, to in that moment associate himself with sinners even though he was sinless. And he came in humility as a servant to be baptized. And then thirdly, we saw that Jesus was baptized because it was a foreshadowing of his death. And Jesus even called his death a baptism as he was there on the cross, covered, immersed in the sins of the world and the wrath of God. We also talked last week about the imagery behind the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus as a dove. And so we talked about what that means in the imagery of the dove. That the dove is a picture of both creation and recreation. In, in the creation account, it says that the Spirit of God hovered over the deep. And the word there for hovered over the deep is the same word, the same picture of a dove hovering over Jesus, lighting on Jesus. It's the same word. So there's a picture there of creation. 
It's also a picture of recreation because it was the dove that, that brought the message to Noah that the world had now, after the flood, been recreated and was ready to, to be inhabited once again. We talked about how Jesus is scripturally understood to be the second Adam and the second Noah. That Adam and Noah were both types, they were shadows, they were pictures of the ultimate Savior that was to come. And so this morning we want to build on that idea of Jesus being the second Adam as we understand that imagery continuing in his temptation in the wilderness. We didn't go very deep last week in what it means for Jesus to be the second Adam. This morning we'll we'll dive a little bit deeper in that because I know it can be a a difficult theological concept, um, but it's one that with the help of the Spirit and certainly with the the help of his word that we can get a grasp on. So here's our our point this morning. Here's our big point. I'll let you know where we're headed, okay? Here it is. When we look at the temptation account of Jesus, this is not so much a pattern to withstand temptation as it is a victorious Savior for us to depend on. So we come to this this temptation narrative. We don't come to it only to find a pattern on how we can withstand temptation. What we see in it is our victorious Savior over temptation. And we find there a Savior for us to depend on. Let's look together in verse 12 and 13. Mark records the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Mark uses one of his favorite words, uh, immediately. Immediately upon his baptism by John there in the Jordan River, immediately the Spirit of God, Mark tells us, drove Jesus out into the wilderness. Jesus was, in that moment, moved by the Spirit of God. He was led by the Spirit of God. It was the Spirit of God that was driving him, compelling him out into this this place that is known as the wilderness. Now, let's uh, make something clear here. Let's be sure about something here because when we read that, that the Spirit of God drove Jesus or the Spirit of God compelled Jesus or he impelled Jesus into into the wilderness. What we cannot read into that is that the Spirit was doing that against Jesus' will. This was not a driving, a compelling of the Jesus of Jesus by the Spirit, in that it was Jesus came up out of the water, uh, baptized by John. The heavens open up. The Spirit of God descends as a dove. God speaks, "This is my Son, in whom I am I am well pleased." And then Jesus, against His will, fights all the way into the wilderness as the Spirit leads Him there. That is not the picture. We cannot understand for that to be the picture because there was never one moment where Jesus wasn't fully willing and obedient to the Spirit's moving in his life. 
The Spirit of God began to work in Jesus supernaturally, compelling him, driving him, leading him into the wilderness. The wilderness. Now, we do not know very much about where exactly Jesus was led. We can't go to the map and say this is the area in which Jesus was led into the wilderness. But there, there is some things that we can know about this place that Mark describes as wilderness. The first thing we can know is it was a place of testing. All throughout the scriptures, when you see um, the, the imagery or, or the wording of the wilderness, you can understand it to be a place of, of testing. It's the place where Satan roams. You see that in the Old Testament in, in the people of Israel as they traveled 40 years in the wilderness. It is a place of testing. And it was there in the wilderness that Jesus was tested. He was tempted by Satan. Mark tells us that in verse 13. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. We don't know exactly where on the map Jesus was led. But we can know that he was led to a place of testing um, by Satan himself. We can also know that it was a desolate an isolated place. Because Mark tells us that he was with the wild animals. Now Mark is the only one that tells us that um, in, in the Gospels that records Jesus' temptation. And so you look at that and you think, well, why is it that Mark is telling us that Jesus was with the wild animals? What does, what does that mean? What it means is, is that there was no one with him. He was alone. He was isolated. And it was a desolate place, a place that, that was ruled by wild animals. They were the only ones with him. He was isolated. He was alone. He was hungry. He'd been fasting for 40 days. And he was certainly, by this point, physically weak. That's where Jesus is. That's the state that he was in. The wilderness is a place of testing. It's a desolate and it's an isolated place. And it was also for Jesus a place of suffering. What Jesus is doing in these 40 days in the wilderness fasting and being tempted by Satan, what Jesus is doing there is suffering. He's not, you know, glamping. There's no, there's no, there's no glamorous camping happening here in, in Jesus' life. This was a season of suffering for Jesus. Now, how do we know that? We know that because of what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It, it was an experience of suffering for Jesus to be led by the Spirit into the wilderness, desolate, isolated, physically weak, exhausted, 
hungry, being tempted by Satan, suffering there in the wilderness. That's where Jesus is. That's what Jesus is doing. And it's important for us to get this picture in our minds. To, to in our minds, put ourselves there. And that's, that's difficult to do because I, I would venture to say that probably none of us have gone 40 days without food. Or have been isolated and alone in a desolate place with wild beasts being tempted by Satan himself. None of us have experienced that. But we can in our, in our minds put ourselves there and see the state that Jesus is in in this Temptation, And what we see here, church, is that this is how far Jesus was willing to go. Not for his own sake, but for yours. This is how far Jesus is willing to go. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the world, the eternal son of God. Was willing to be led by the spirit into the wilderness to fast for 40 days and to be tempted by Satan himself. Now, Mark does not record for us anything that happened there in the wilderness except that Jesus was fasting and that he was tempted and that he was ministered to by angels. That's what Mark tells us. Now, we can learn more about that, and we will in just a second in Matthew chapter 4. But just one word before we get there, because I'm not going to cover it in the rest of the sermon. I don't want to leave you wondering what exactly it means that Jesus was ministered to by angels. I'm pretty comfortable to say that we don't exactly know what that means, and that's okay. But the historical understanding of what it means that Jesus was ministered to by the angels, the angels were ministering to him. Historically, that's understood that at the completion of 40 days of fasting, that the angels brought him food to eat. That's the, that's the historical understanding of what it means for the, for the angels to be ministering to him. We pull that out of 1 Kings chapter 18, I believe, where we see angels bringing food. Um, so that's more than likely what that means, but we don't know exactly um, what that means or, or what that looked like. But there are some things that we can know took place here in this temptation. Um, we have other accounts in the Gospels that we can learn for. And so I want to look together in, in Matthew chapter 4 in the first 11 verses there so that we can get a, a fuller picture of what's happening here in Jesus's temptation. Matthew records, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's called an understatement. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered... It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then, he took, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, 
lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him again, it is written, for you shall not put the Lord your God to test. And the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Matthew records for us that at the completion of 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, that Satan came to him with three temptations. And those temptations can be described as pleasure, as pride, and as power. It was a temptation of pleasure, it was a temptation of pride, and it was a temptation of of power. And all three of these temptations are common to every single one of us. Almost every temptation, almost every sin can be boiled down into one of these three categories. Either pleasure, either pride, or either power. And these were the three temptations that Jesus was tempted with. He was tempted first with pleasure. He was hungry. He'd been fasting 40 days and 40 nights. He was hungry, Matthew says. That that gives us the state that Jesus was in so that we can understand the first temptation that Satan brings. When the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, prove you are the Son of God and turn these, these stones into loaves of bread. Jesus surely could have done that. And in that moment, to take bread, freshly baked manna from heaven, in a a state of fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, that would have been a pleasurable experience. And his desires, his physical needs would have been met in that moment. But yet Jesus understood That the greater desire and the greater needs are spiritual ones. To live by the power of God's spirit. This was a temptation of, of pleasure. Church, I don't have to tell you about what your temptations of pleasures are. You know. They take all sorts of forms. All the way from from. Gluttony to sexual immorality. There's the temptation of pleasures that run the spectrums. Jesus was tempted by pleasure and yet he stood strong. The second was a temptation of pride. The devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. If you really are the son of God, then the angels are at your beck and call and you certainly are safe. Throw yourself off of here and prove it. This is the temptation of pride. Yet Jesus again said to him, as it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I don't have to tell you about what your temptations of pride are. You know what they are. And they run the gamut. All the way from vanity 
to debt. We're tempted in the area of pride. The third temptation of Jesus was one of power. The devil again took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. A temptation of power. I will give you all of these. I will give you all of these. Now, you probably have questions. Like, how could Jesus, I mean, how could Satan give these things to Jesus? If you do have questions, you can go back to my sermon on Satan out of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's on the website or on the podcast. I talk about how Satan can offer this to Jesus. But the temptation here was one of power. It was one of power. And I don't have to tell you what your temptations are in the realm of power. You know what they are. And they run the gamut. They run the gamut. And they can manifest themselves as being an overbearing husband or wife or parent. To lying and stealing to set yourself up as something that you're not. They run the gamut. And Jesus was tempted in all of these ways. Yet he withstood these temptations and he passed the test perfectly. And we can, don't get me wrong church, we can come to this text and we can learn from Jesus... A pattern to withstand temptation. You can do it. And it's not a bad thing to do that. It's not bad to come to this text and say, how did Jesus do it? And to look and see that Jesus was dependent, dependent on the Holy Spirit. That he was led there by the Spirit. He was being, being driven by the Spirit. That the that, that Spirit was indwelling him. And if we're going to withstand temptation, then we have to live a life led by the Spirit. And we can come to these stories and we can see Jesus fought this temptation with the Word of God, right? Every answer to the temptation that Jesus gives comes from the Word of God. And we can see, play out right before us in this story, how the Word of God is the only offensive weapon in the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. This is what we have to fight temptations, to give it back to the tempter. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's using the Word of God against Satan and those temptations. And so we can come from here and we can see a pattern to say, if you're going to fight temptation... If you're going to stand strong, then do it as you're being led by the Spirit. And as you have the Word of God in your heart and in your mind. And you're, you're taking the Word of God and using its truth to fight temptations. Those are certainly patterns that we can see here and apply. And we can come to this and we can see and we can learn. And this is an important one, church. That just because a Bible verse is used, it does not mean it's of God. So many times people are swayed by false teachers and false doctrine because they use the Bible. And you can say they're not preaching the word. And they say, oh, they're preaching the word. He talked about, you know, he talked about the Bible. They have Bible verses. Well, if that's the case, Satan preached the word. Because what did he use? He brought God's word to Jesus, but yet it was twisted. And false teachers do that today. They take the Word of God and they twist it. Just because the Word of God is used does not mean it is of God. That's led so many people in the church astray. 
We need discernment to understand and to see how the Word of God is being used and how the Word of God is being applied. We can take these patterns and we can apply them to our lives. And those are all fine and good points. But I do not believe they are the main point. And we cannot, church, focus on those because they might be more applicable to your daily life and neglect the bigger point. Because this passage shows us what Jesus did for us. What this passage shows us and the bigger point of the passage is that Jesus is the new Adam. Jesus is the second Adam. Because there's only one other story in the scriptures that is like this. That draws parallel to this. There's only one other time recorded in the scriptures where Satan himself comes to a human, to a man, and tempts them. And in that temptation, takes God's word and twists it. Right? What did Satan say to Adam and Eve? Did God really say? It's the only other time in the scriptures where Satan comes personally to tempt someone. It's in the garden. And so there is imagery here of the first temptation of the first Adam and their failure... And the temptation of the second Adam and his victory. What we see in the first Adam is man's inability to honor God. You see Adam and Eve expelled into the wilderness because of their disobedience. God has created them a place to live. God has created them a place to dwell in perfect harmony. And guess what's there? Wild beasts are there. But guess what? They're not looking to devour them. Everything is dwelling in perfect unity and perfect harmony. Yet when temptation comes, they cannot withstand. They're They're unable to honor God. And in response to that, God takes them... And he takes them out of the garden and he drives them out. The Spirit of God drives them out into the wilderness because of their disobedience. Now here comes the Savior of the world. And he is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness for his obedience. And what Jesus does in the wilderness is what Adam could never do in the garden. He is the new Adam. He is the greater Adam. He is the second Adam. The point is Jesus did what we could not do. So one of the themes in the New Testament is Jesus being the second Adam. I'm going to draw your attention to a couple of, of passages of the scriptures that talk about this. One is found in Roman or in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 through 49. 
so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. This is Paul just talking about the resurrection, talking about the new life, the second life, and the juxtaposition between this life and that life, this flesh and that flesh, this body and that body. Verse 45, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. That's, that's Adam in the garden. He became a living being. When did he become a living being? He became a living being when the Spirit of God breathed life into him, breathed spirit into him. He became a, a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first Adam, dependent on the Spirit of God to give him life. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, is the Spirit of God and gives life. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, a man of the dust. The second man, he's from heaven. You see the juxtaposition here of the first man, Adam, being created out of the earth. But Jesus coming from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That in this life, because we are descendants, children of Adam, we bear the image of Adam... Dust to dust. But when we are born again and when we are resurrected from the dead on the last day, we will bear the image of the second Adam. An eternal, everlasting, glorious spirit. This is the juxtaposition between the first man, Adam, and his weaknesses, his inabilities, his frailties, and Jesus Christ and his victory. That's the image. Second passage is Romans 15. Verses 12 through 21. I'm sorry, Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. When Adam's sin, sin came into the world and sin reigned and it reigned all the way from Adam until now. And then there's lots of deep theological truths here about the nature of sin and 
the indwelling of sin and original sin and um, how the law and sin work together. Huge, huge theological concepts that, that that's, that's three weeks of sermons in and of themselves. One day it will, I'll preach through Romans. But it might take 10 years. But sin reigned because we are like the first Adam. We're sinners. And then you see what, what Paul tells us here. That Adam was a type of the one who was to come. He was a, he was a type of Jesus. He was a, a picture. It was a foreshadowing of Jesus. Of the second Adam. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For as many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the free gift is not like the result of that man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Death reigned out of one man, Adam. Until the second Adam came. And from that one man flows life to all men. That's the imagery. Just as death and sin came out of one man, Adam. And it flowed to every man. So through Jesus Christ, the second Adam. Who did perfectly what Adam could not do, who withstood the temptations that Adam could not withstand, who lived perfectly and righteously. Through that one man, God's grace flows to all men. Through Adam came one race of people. Through Jesus comes a new race of people. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and the life of all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the second Adam. And from him, by faith, there is a new bloodline. One born out of his perfect spilled blood. Just as through the first Adam, all were created and all were created in sin. So through the second Adam, by faith, all who come to him are recreated 
and they're recreated in grace and righteousness. That's what it means for Jesus to be the second Adam. That's what we see in this story in his temptation account in the wilderness. We see Jesus being the second Adam and withstanding the temptation perfectly. And because of that, there is in Christ a new people. And that new people is known as the new Israel, the true Israel. There's also imagery here of of Israel, the people of God, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, right? 40 years they wandered in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, they were stiff-necked, disobedient people. And guess what they did? They put God to the test. And here comes Jesus, driven into the wilderness for 40 days. And he passes the test. And from Jesus, the true Israel, comes a new bloodline. A new people. Jesus did in 40 days in perfect obedience what Israel could not do. He did for us what we could not do. And now Jesus... The perfect one, the one who fulfilled the law perfectly, the one who had the power to withstand the temptation victorious. Now he is our advocate before God. Because when I read the temptation narrative, this is the, this is the text that my mind goes to immediately. It's Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. That's, the, that's his, his temptation in the wilderness. Tempted, pleasure, pride, power. Tempted just like we are. Yet without sin. We have a high priest who's been tempted just as we have been tempted. Yet he did it without sin. And he has passed through the heavens. And he is now at the right hand of God. And because of that, verse 16. Let us then, because he's our great high priest. Because he's been tempted. Because he can sympathize with our weaknesses. Because he's been there. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of of need. Because Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness and was tempted yet was without sin, because he did it, we can go to him. Who else do we have to go to? There is no one else. There is only him. There's no one else that has withstood the temptations. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus is the only one. And the amazing thing 
The miraculous thing is that the perfect one, the victorious one, Jesus Christ, he is today at the right hand of God as our advocate, pleading our case before God, offering himself and his righteousness in place of our sinfulness and our unrighteousness. That's what Jesus is doing. And so we are called to draw near to him. Who else do we have to draw near to? There is no one else. We certainly don't go there in our own strength because we don't have the strength to withstand the temptations. We shouldn't be hiding in shame. Do you know why we shouldn't hide from God in shame? We shouldn't hide from God in shame because Jesus was there in our place and he withstood the temptations. And he can sympathize with us. He can sympathize with us. So many people are hesitant to come before God in faith because of all that they've done, of all the sin in their life, and they hide in shame. That's what, that's what Satan wants you to do. That's not what Jesus wants you to do. He wants you to come. He wants you to come and find grace in your time of need because he can sympathize. And he's at the right hand of, the God, of God on your behalf. Don't hide in shame. Come to him. He was there and he was perfect. And we're not called to cower in fear. So many people are afraid to come to God. Well, what's God going to do to me? Not only am I ashamed of what I've done, but I'm scared that God's going to smoke me. I just like the word smoke. You don't get to use it very often. He's going to smoke me. There's no reason to cower in fear from God. Not if you come to him in faith. There's no reason to cower in fear from him. As a matter of fact, the very opposite should take place. We should come with boldness. Draw near to the throne with confidence. Not cowering in fear. Because Jesus can and will sympathize. What does that mean? He can sympathize with our weaknesses. What does that mean? It means that he gives grace. He gives grace. It means that Jesus, by faith, can be for you what you were never able to be for yourself. Because you didn't withstand the temptations. I didn't withstand the temptations. But Jesus did. And he can be for us what we can never be for ourselves by faith. By faith, he can do for you what you could never do for yourself. You can't earn the forgiveness of God. You can't earn back righteousness. You can't do it. Coming to church isn't going to get it done. Being a good dad and a good husband isn't going to get it done. There's no good that you can do to earn it back. There's just faith in Jesus Christ and his perfect work for you and grace that flows out of a loving God. Church, this is our hope. When we come to the temptation story, what do we see? We see our great hope, the perfect, sinless Savior of the world, victorious over temptation. That's our hope. That's our hope. That he did for me what I could not do. He became what I could not be. 
It's not that you or I can leave here empowered with the skills to live a sinless life. That's not the point of the temptation narrative. Because guess what? You can't do it. And I can't do it. Our hope is that even though we can't do it, Christ did. And His righteousness is counted on us by faith. Church, this story, it's not about our victory over sin. It's about His victory over sin. And the perfect, sinless life offered on our behalf so that by faith we could be recreated through the new Adam, through the true Israel, that by faith we could be the people of God. That's the point. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.